The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the Keeper Cut podcast, the podcast from the Pitcherless Podcast Network dedicated to Keeper Leagues and Auto New Leagues. We are going to get into Auto New more today. We've done a lot on ADP. We did a mock draft. We look at guys who were drafted too late. Today, we are recovering from last week. Pete and I are in the same Auto New League. We had our auction a few days ago and we're just getting a chance to sort of look back, figure out what happened, what went right, what went wrong. Pete, this is your your first Auto New League, right? It is. It very clearly was, I should say. <laughs> very clearly was. You feel like you made some some mistakes? Uh, my mistakes were weeks ago with not cutting. You know, we'll get into it, but I, I should have cut a lot more players than I did. Yeah, I think that happens to to a lot of people. It's interesting because you know this because you're new to this. This isn't your team. You didn't draft this team, and I feel like a lot of times people get there's that endowment effect, right? Like I picked this guy. I like this guy. I liked him last year. Why wouldn't I still like him this year? It's hard to cut. It's interesting. You had a hard time making those cuts, even with guys that, that Nick Pollock picked for you, right? This was Nick's team before it was your team. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah. That's the, uh, the team name on it. Pollock and Pollock is, I believe a reference to him. And I think he had AJ Pollock at some point, although I don't know if you still do. That would make sense. Um, no, I do not have AJ Pollock. I wish I did because now with Eloy out, I have Randall Grichik in my starting lineup, which just makes me want to vomit. Well, there's worse guys to have, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but what if I told you my fifth outfielder is Marwin Gonzalez? Do you now want to puke? Yeah, yeah that's not good. <laughs> you should you should probably go find another outfielder somewhere. <laughs> there's probably an outfielder on the waiver wire you could pick up. That's That'd be an improvement. But, and I would, but my time on the waiver wire has been spent trying to find starting pitchers. So it's it's a process here. I feel like everybody is looking for starting pitching right now, not just in this league. Like all of my auto new leagues, all of my non-auto new leagues, every league I'm in right now, everyone's like, there's, you know, people are gambling on on literally anyone. It's like Carlos Rodon has had like five good innings in the spring and people are like, I'm on, I'm in, let's do it. It's so true, Chad. I did. This has been a huge draft week for me. This is like officially draft week, not just for me, but really for my entire family. And I had a um, a keeper league draft earlier this week, a, a, a league that's been going on for quite some time. Now it's six by six and K per nine is one of them, which actually makes this even weirder. But pitching was pushed up so much 
so much for really no explicable reason. It's not like the situation is that unique in this particular league. It is not a points league. It's a categories league that Zach Wheeler went ahead of Randy Rosarena, who I got at pick 106. So that is how like intensely pitching has been pushed up. Uh, at least in my circles heading into uh, this season. That's just crazy. I mean, I like, I get that. I also feel like this year, all pitching is risky. We have no idea. Like all these guys are going to be throwing way more innings than they did last year. We don't know what kind of shape they're in. We haven't really seen a full season from anybody in so long. I'm just, I don't know. I feel like I was fading pitching through the off season more than I normally do because of that. And so I started to, like in in one of my leagues, uh, the the original Auto New League League One, I traded away like four starting pitchers this off season. So it's just like I don't I don't trust any of these guys, and so I'm just going to build an offense that I feel like I can rely on. And now I'm looking at all of my teams, and I've got like I'm I'm rostering guys like Madison Bumgarner, Mike Miner. Um, I've got a number like. Domingo Herman started having that great spring and Nick boosted him way up the list at pitcher list. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm jumping on him. And so I've got him on a bunch of rosters and, and I'm, I think I'm going to be playing that game for most of the season, but I still feel better about that than I think I would about having a bunch of money tied up in pitchers in these leagues. It's, you know, it's funny because I actually think, I actually think it's more about the hitting than it is about the pitching because even though it looks like, you know, all right, well, who knows what everybody's going to do with their innings this year. Injuries are more rampant for pitchers than ever before. It looks like it's a pitcher thing, and I understand that. But I think it's more like everybody's hitting 20 to 30 home runs. Everybody's doing it. And, like, it's almost like position in the lineup doesn't even matter anymore to a certain extent. And so it, am I going to use a – you know, I hate to use the example because I have him in a couple of leagues, and, and I know you do as well, but Eloy Jimenez, right? Eloy was one of the first hitters off the board – other than like mega proven studs like Freddie Freeman who don't offer any speed. And so I would be thinking with Eloy, like if he's going to hit me 280 with 35 homers and 100 RBI, why don't I just take a way more likely sure thing at pitcher and then take, I don't know, Nick Castellanos five rounds later. So I, I think it's, if it's not a pitcher, if it's if it's a pitcher thing, it is as much also a hitter thing in this weird development we've seen in fantasy over the last five years that is that is clearly culminating this season. Yeah, I think the challenge for me is I'm not sure who I consider a sure thing at pitcher. Like I, there are so few pitchers that I look at and go like, yep, that guy's going to give me exactly what I expect. Like I know what I'm getting from Jacob deGrom. And then after that, <laughs> I'm sort of Oh, wow. It. So that, that's where you're at. It's I mean, him I, and... I mean, so like, look at this, like, look at Garrett Cole's last four years, right? He's obviously been great at times. He's also had a couple of okay years out of his last four years. You look at Shane Bieber and like, I love Shane Bieber. Look, I'm a Cleveland fan. I'm a Bieber guy, but he also had about the easiest schedule in baseball last year, right? Along with guys like Bauer and Darvish. And so do I think, do I think Bieber is going to be bad? No, he's young, he's healthy, he's got the right skill set. Do I feel confident he's going to be a top three pitcher? I don't know. I think I'm confident he's going to be a top 10 pitcher. And so that's pretty safe. And so I would take him in the first round. And I did in in one of my leagues. But then, I don't know. I like Again, I think Cole will be fine. But Cole's had some mediocre years recently. Bauer is going very early. I don't think Bauer is a top 10 pitcher. Darvish is going very early. He's 
older. He's had some injury issues in the past. I just like, there's nobody I really look at. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, Zach Wheeler going before Rosarena. Like Wheeler is actually a pretty stable guy. Which is crazy, of, by the way. Right. That is, it's that we view. If imagine saying that two years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I look at I look at Wheeler, and it's like he's not going to be an ace. I know he's not going to be an ace, but I feel relatively confident he's going to give me a good number of solid innings. And so, but there aren't that many guys that I look at, and I'm like, yep, that's a guy I'm going to take, and I'm going to be able to pencil him in, and I feel good about it. Um, I was listening to uh, Rates and Barrels, the Athletic podcast with Eno Saris and uh, DVR. And they were talking about Mike Miner from that perspective, as Miner is a guy who he's had some injury histories, but when he's healthy, he eats innings. There's no real reason to believe the Royals are going to go easy on him. And so is Miner a guy that you know what you're getting? You know you're not going to get some like incredible rates. He's not going to be your ace. But are you going to get, can you rely on him to throw you more innings than almost anyone else you can rely on right now? Maybe. And and it's not that I'm just going to going to endorse minor i've got him on a couple rosters but i'm not endorsing him as like the safe pick to give you 175 to 200 innings it's just if that's the conversation we're having about pitching is hey maybe mike minor is a safe guy to give you (laughs) give you a lot of innings man that's not where i want to (laughs) be so i i hear that i think the people who i think are adopting a similar mindset at starting pitcher to me view it as is actually not different from what you're saying it's actually the same it's who knows, basically, after Jacob deGrom, I would extend that to Bieber and Cole as well. But I totally understand the argument that after that, it's kind of a mystery. And so I think people want as many shots at hitting as possible. And so and when I say shots at hitting, I mean, not on hitting. I mean, on hitting on one of those starting pitchers. So when you look look at my team in the staff league, which is no shining example of a team, I have my holes. But Jesus Lazardo is my fifth starting pitcher. And I... I still have Noah Syndergaard on the bench and I have Montgomery as the sixth and I've got, I've got Trevor Rogers as my seventh. And I feel comfortable with that because do I think I'm going to hit on DeGrom, Bauer, Burns, Anderson, and Lazardo? No, of course not. Nobody's that lucky. But so long as I hit on three of those five, I, I'm probably going to be okay. And I leave myself a lot more likely to have a decent to very good rotation if I, if I invest in those picks and if you look at my hitting, I I don't think it's in a nor I say a normal year. Five years ago, I think my hitting would look atrocious, but I've still got a pretty loaded lineup. I, I've got Seeger, I've got Judge. I mean, if he stays healthy, of course that's a fair question. But I mean, you're going to ask that about any player. So I still feel like my lineup is good enough to win, and I've set myself up to not be disappointed at pitcher, which it seems like is the most unpredictable component to our game today. Yeah, and see, for me, when I look at the, the pitching, looking at that same league, this pitcherless staff league we're both in, I took Nola in the second. I took Woodruff in the fourth. I like both of those. I didn't take another starting pitcher till the 11th. And my third and fourth and fifth starting pitchers are Pablo Lopez, Julio Urias, and Ryan Yarborough. And then late, I grabbed Domingo Herman. I stashed Luis Severino. Um, I feel I would rather have spent my early picks on the bats I spent them on and then go out and play around with the waiver wire if I need to and find innings over the course of the season 
than have passed on those bats just because I, I don't, I feel like I could hit on two or three of those guys just as easily as I could have hit on two or three earlier guys. And the hits won't be as big when they come, right? I'm not going to, you may get two aces out of that group and then one other very, very good pitcher. I'm not going to get that much. But I felt like after I took Woodruff and Nola, I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to count on those two. I mean, the reality is if my second and fourth round picks bust, I'm in trouble anyways. Like it doesn't matter if they're pitchers or hitters. So I went after the pitchers I could get there. I, I the guy I took in between those, as you mentioned, Eloy Jimenez. So I'm already in trouble in that league with my offense. I feel even better about the fact that I prioritized offense in that league because I actually might be able to weather losing Jimenez. But yeah, not a good place to be in in any, either case with pitching. I feel like you either overspend on it and feel like okay, maybe this will come together, or you underspend on it and you're you're wish casting on a bunch of guys. And anyways, that's not really what we're here to talk about. We're actually <laughs> going to try to do a pitching episode next week, but this week we are here to talk auto new. And for those of you who are who are new to auto new. Talk let's talk, tell you a little bit about it. So Auto New is a fantasy platform. It's hosted at Fangraphs. It is fantasy designed to challenge you the way a real GM is challenged. And so you have 40-man rosters. You have a $400 salary cap. You've got a budget for players. Players' salaries go up every year. Uh, you start off with an auction at the beginning of the first season. Every player gets bought up. Once the players are on rosters, their, their salaries go up $2 every year. You can keep or cut whoever you want. So, you know, you think about a keeper league where you're limited to five or 10 or seven or whatever it is, keepers, or a versus, versus a dynasty league where you can keep everybody, but there's, and there's no salaries involved, there's no cost involved. Auto New plays sort of in between those a little bit, where unlike a keeper league, you can keep whoever you want. There's no limits on that. But unlike a dynasty league, you actually have to think about budgets and cost and what is this guy really worth to me? I think one of the things I play in a couple dynasty leagues, one of the things I dislike about dynasty is this idea that like, oh, I hit on Juan Soto. Now I get to sit on Juan Soto for the next 12 years. And there's no decision-making there. There's nothing to think about. There's no challenges. There's no reason to ever trade him. Whereas in an auto new league, if you hit on Soto, there's a couple of things that are going to drive up his salary. One is these $2 increases every offseason. The other is there's an arbitration process where every other team in the league gets to assign money. to the, Every team in the league gets to assign money to every other team in the league. And basically what you're doing is you're saying... I'm going to put I'm going to put a dollar on Pete's Eloy Jimenez in this offseason and drive up his price by a dollar. And you get $25 spread around to the other teams, so you're putting 2 to 3 bucks per team out on other players. And so if you have a guy like Soto and you picked him up when he first broke out and you had him for 10 bucks, he went up to 12 the next season automatically. But a bunch of other people probably put money on him and he probably ended up costing you 25, which was still a great price for him. But you were then forced to start to make decisions. And what is his value? And should I think about trading him? And the next offseason, he's going to go up another 20 bucks. And so you get that, that value from him for a couple of years, sort of like a real team does, right? And I think that's the, the fun thing to me about Auto New versus a Dynasty League is the Nationals don't get to sit there and say, okay, now we've got Soto and he's just ours for free forever. They get a little bit of time to capitalize on the fact that they hit on him. And then they got to make a call. How much are they going to pay him? What's he worth? Is their team better with him or with five other guys they could get? So, Pete, I know you're sort of new to it. Have, what, what's your experience been like? Well, I, I don't want to say anything really all that much has quote unquote surprised me. You know, I was expecting 
<clears throat> when you were first telling me about Otnua that whatever team I would end up with is going to have its good values, its overpriced players. But the one thing that, that I mentioned earlier was I was way too timid to make cuts. I guess I wasn't used to how ruthless it is. It wouldn't have been crazy for me to cut Anthony Rendon, right? Like I think I'm getting pretty good value at $40. But when you look at my rotation, like could I have used that 40 bucks to buy Kershaw arguably and Scherzer given how much money I have? Like, yes. And there's another thing that, that I don't want to say, again, has surprised me, but I do find really interesting about that format. But I'm going to save that for the new question of the day. And it has to do with age versus value. I was able to get in our auction a lot of younger players that I had been I just had a list of like all right I'm gonna be in dollar days for essentially the entire draft who are some guys who I can grab and I was surprised at the lack of resistance in getting those players but it's a lot more sobering when you realize the lack of resistance is because other people are like all set and just looking to win whereas I'm trying to upgrade positions already and we're a year away from next year (laughs) but you know with that said it, it went kind of according to plan there was the first player off the board though which I know we're going to talk about that did surprise me. And that was Clayton Kershaw. He was the first one nominated. And Kershaw went for, I want to say it was $21. I just had the page up. It's $22. $22. $22. So, I mean, Chad, you're the one with the experience. I mean, how much of a steal was that? It seems like, you know, the thing about the the prices on pitchers or anything is they vary. They vary by league, as always. They, and they also vary by how people just analyze guys right and so like i'm i was a little bit down on kershaw and so i don't know but i I look at that i'm looking at other pitchers who went in that auction so three players later we're going to leave out otani for now we're gonna come back to otani later but he's obviously much different for a variety of reasons uh but kershaw went for 22 then we had aaron judge and otani come off the board then max scherzer went for 41 then we had uh, Anthony Bass, Nolan Arenado, Giancarlo Stanton come off the board, and then Strasburg went for 22. Carlos Carrasco went for 11. Then Gary Sanchez, and then Zach Grinke went for 14. And so, if you look at it in the context, you know everybody in this draft was talking about Kershaw being such a value. It, it, almost as soon as it happened, and it was the theme of the conversation for the night. But if you look at those first one, two, three, four, five starting pitchers off the board. You know, Scherzer at 41, Kershaw at 22, Strasburg at 22, Grinky at 14, Carrasco at 11. Kershaw and Strasburg feel like values relative to Scherzer. Um, I, I don't know compared to the others. I mean, it's hard to know what to make of of Carrasco and his timeline and stuff like that. But it's I certainly would rather have Kershaw or Strasburg at 22 than I want Scherzer at 41. But they all have their warts and they all have their risks. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I, thought it, I thought it was a value. I didn't think it was as crazy good a value as everyone else did. That's fair. I think when you, when you put it in perspective with those buys, it definitely looks a lot... It looks like the illogical one is Scherzer. That's that's for sure. Yeah, and that's the thing that jumped out at me. Is like when I at first I was like, okay, Kershaw twenty two, pitching's not going to be crazy expensive here. And then Scherzer went for forty one as the next pitcher off the board, and I was like, okay, pitching is going to be crazy expensive here. And then we had Strasburg at twenty two as the next one. And I was like, okay, I'm not sure where this is going to settle in, <laughs> but like Strasburg and Kershaw both being at twenty two doesn't seem totally crazy to me. I you know. I would rather have Kershaw than Strasburg at that price, but it's not like a, I don't know. It doesn't seem crazy to me either way, especially given how, well, should, should be clear. Strasburg came into camp with all these questions about the carpal tunnel thing. Then he was pitching really well, seemed really healthy. Everything seemed good. We drafted at that time. 
So when we drafted, he was healthy and all was well. Then he like, what was it? What's the with him? He had a ruptured tendon in his calf that his doctors were like, you don't need that. It's just an extra tendon or something. <laughs> it's so weird, but that is exactly what it was. Yes. They're like, no, actually you're fine. You don't, you don't even need that. I don't know what that means. But I could have sworn I saw a quote from Strasburg where he said that if we still crawled around on all fours, that tendon would matter. And it's like, okay. okay. Nice. So if if somebody you know what you should bunt on him because he can't crawl to the ball apparently <laughs> that's the only thing I could think of but anyways you know maybe maybe Strasburg's values come down a little bit in the last week just because doctors say you don't need that tendon but who knows <laughs> but I don't know I look at that and like none of those none of those seem crazy I think then as you go through and look at pitching elsewhere like there were a bunch of guys that I thought I like I was pretty happy with I mean. You say Kikuchi, who came off the board earlier than I would have liked, I got for $10. I don't think that's a bad price on him at all. It's a little high compared to where he's been going elsewhere, but it's not It's not crazy. Patrick Corbin for $7, I got a few picks later and I was thrilled. What's interesting is like Syndergaard went for 17 That to me, like why are we stashing Noah Syndergaard at 17 when you could have had Strasburg or Kershaw? <laughs> for 22 that one seemed really high to me i was hoping to stash Cindergard, but i was thinking like 10 bucks <laughs> this this was not what i was expecting from him he went he went way higher than i thought i think a player like that i who knows who nominated him i i don't know but if he was my target there's no way i'm nominating him for a very long time into this draft yeah i assume whoever nominated him was just trying to get him out of the way like trying to stop somebody from getting a deal on him which obviously worked <laughs> Right. It definitely worked. I mean, he's $5 cheaper than Kershaw, who I feel like I'm just now going to bring up for the rest of this podcast. Yeah, I think it's they're just part of it is there just wasn't a lot of top end starting pitching, right? Like when I picked up Corbin and Kikuchi for 17 between them, we were still in the first couple rounds of this thing. And like I'm looking at what other starting pitchers came off the board. Like I was trying to find what other what other prices there were. And the next starting pitchers off the board were like Robbie Ray for $4, David Price for $5. It's not like there's a bunch of other aces or, or even third starting pitchers available. Justice Sheffield went for $2 next. Um, and he's already been traded. Randy Dobnak was the next pitcher off the board at $1. Uh, Andrew Haney, Christian Javier, Trevor Rogers all went in a row for four, three, and four. So you, you hit a point pretty early on where it was like there was Kershaw, there was Scherzer, there was Strasburg. You got Grinky and Carrasco, who I, I don't. Carrasco would be long in that camp if he were healthy, but maybe doesn't now. Carrasco looks like the deal to me, though. If I, if someone's paying seventeen dollars for Thor and I can have an eleven dollar Carrasco, uh, I'm that looks like the 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 better price and the more interesting guy to me. I don't know. Pitching prices were sort of all over the place, is what it comes down to, and it was just such a small group of aces that I I think I think people were surprised by how cheap Kershaw was, overspent on Scherzer somewhat as a result, and then recorrected back to basically Kershaw being not that great a deal compared to some of the other guys. It's just it just varies. I'm I'm much happier with Corbin plus Kikuchi for seventeen dollars than I would be with. Kershaw for 22. But I am also would be much happier with Kershaw for 22 than with Thor for 17. So I, I'm not really sure how to how to think about the values on pitching in this draft because they were just they were all over. Unsurprisingly, I mean, it, it comes down to at the beginning of any auction salary draft, the, the values at the beginning sometimes lead us to believe that like, all right, this is where players are going to be priced, but it's not always consistent. Things have a way of correcting themselves. I do think Carrasco, be it at $11 here or getting him in like the 18th round of drafts where he's going, 
I think it, it there's, there's value there because I think he proved last year he can still pitch and he can actually still pitch at a pretty high level. And if it's true that it's just a grade one, I've heard grade one and I've heard grade two. I'm not a doctor and I'm not even going to pretend to be one. But, you know, it's it obviously happening during spring training is a bummer because it's affecting his workup and so, so on and so forth. But I still feel like there's a chance that this guy's back in April and now you have a a top potentially top 15. I don't think that's that crazy, but definitely a top 25 starter who you're either getting for 11 bucks here or super late in a keeper draft. But the one I wanted to ask you about Chad is a guy that I I think we're going to disagree with pretty heavily. I I think Patrick Corbin is washed. I do. I, I think he's washed. I mean, the velocity so last year during spring, the velocity was around 88. He was able to work it up to 90. This year, he's at 90. So maybe he works it back up to 92 and he can be maybe a little viable again. But he was flat out. I mean, almost all career worse across the board for a guy who has had put forward some pretty poor seasons. Really, really bad last year. And and if we wanted to write off 2020, you know I'm all about that, writing off 2020 for a lot of guys. Lord knows I did it for Gary Sanchez for whatever reason, but nothing worked for him last year. He looked lost. He's at an age where maybe guys do begin to lose it. I have a lot of concern with Corbin. Yeah, I thought his I thought his velocity was up a little bit more than that in the spring. Like I thought he was up over 90 for most of the spring. And I, I looked at him and I feel like when he was his best years in in Washington and Arizona, like the highest he's been on his fastball velocity was ninety two four. Um, for the and he has been very successful at you know ninety point eight in two thousand eighteen, ninety one in two thousand nineteen. Like those were his two sort of best years, two of his three best years, along with two thousand fifteen. And, and he was sitting, you know, ninety point eight in two thousand eighteen, ninety one point nine in two thousand nineteen. He was 90.2 last year, and he's been up, like we said, this spring versus where he was last year. And so to me, if he can get that 90.2 back up to 91, it puts him right in between where he was in 2018 and 2019, and I don't see any reason he can't go back to being a very, very effective pitcher. I don't think he's going to repeat what he did in 2018 where he had a 2.47 FIP, uh, he was striking out more than 11 guys per inning and walking only 2.16. He basically put up like career numbers across the board all at once. I actually think it's a little bit much to expect him to get back to 2018 or 2019, I mean, where he had a 3.49 fit. But I think he can get back down under four. And for $7, that's he's well worth that. I, I think projections on him range from like the best projection on him is Zips at 3.89 FIP. The worst is the bat at 4.22. And that's just of the ones that are available to me at Fangraphs because that's where I'm looking right now. I think somewhere in the middle of that, a 3.9, 3.95 is a totally reasonable expectation. And he has upside beyond that. That's that's my read on Corbin. I, I'm, you know, if the velocity, if he isn't following the same velocity trajectory, right? Because I do think he does need, you know, like he built it up last year. I think he does need to build it up a little bit this year. If he's not doing that, then I'm going to end up I'm not cutting him at some point, but the reality is he doesn't need to gain a lot versus where he was last year to be back where he was when he was one of the better pitchers in baseball. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of it is velocity based. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely invested in like seeing the velocity increase. It would be nice if it was up more. Apparently it, it is up relative to last year's spring training, but it's not up that much more than where he was during most of last season. So if, if all you're expecting, you know, is that 3.94 ERA, I do think that's within his potential range of outcomes. 
just where he's got, I think for $7 in our odd new auction, which is our focus, I think that's fine, right? I mean, I, I think we've seen values all over the place. Like I'm keeping a Josh Lindblom at $6 who we're going to talk about. And I would much rather have a $7 Corbin. With that said, I'm just going to do a, a big stat dump right now on Corbin's 2020 because he's been a guy I've been researching on and off this offseason because you, you clearly see how I feel about starting pitcher heading into this year. It was the worst FIP ERA strikeouts per nine, home runs per nine, and swing strike percentage for him since 2016. It was also the lowest ground ball percentage of his career, which is concerning for me if he's not getting the whiffs. He had a high BABIP, which would suggest maybe he had some bad luck, but that was a whopping 44.2 hard hit percentage or percentage hard hit percentage and a 90.7 average exit velocity. It was the worst fastball in baseball by PVAL. And I, I know I've gone over a lot of these stats in the past, but it's just when you add it all up, I'm, I'm trying to find a silver lining from last year. And unless it comes out that he was dealing with some kind of injury, I, I want nothing to do with him. But again, for this auction, $7, throwing it out there, and you still have money left over, that's fine. I don't know if it was just velocity. Part of the challenge is when you only have, what did he throw last year? He threw 65 innings. We only have 65 innings to work with, and you've got a guy who has a, a BAPIP that's out of line with his career and a ground ball rate that's a career low and all this stuff. It's really hard for me to separate and understand if he, like, was he? Did he have a hard time getting up to speed because of all the weird stuff that happened last year? And so he just never felt right and he never pitched well. Did he actually lose something other than the velocity? Was it just the velocity? Like, There's so many questions and they're so hard to answer that I think he's a worthwhile gamble. Because if it was just the velocity or if it was just the velocity plus the weirdness of the year, or if he just had some bad luck on hard hit, right? Even like that, that hard hit rate is really high. I don't really know how predictive that is. And so I don't know that I feel confident looking at that and being like, oh, well, now he's getting hit a lot harder. He did get hit a lot harder in a very small sample. And so that's where, to me, it's like, there's a $15 or $20 pitcher in there if he goes back to being what he was. There's a, a $12 to $15 pitcher in there if he gets partway back to what he was. And so for 7 bucks, I'll find out. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I, I've got him in a couple of other places too, but it's... I think you're right that it, it's it's all cost related, right? Like you can't pay you can't pay fifteen to twenty bucks for him, which I think I actually paid thirteen in one case, which is too much. But I think there's a lot worth looking at. He's been very successful over his career. I, I think it's worth a gamble. But again, we, we were talking earlier about whether or not Mike Miner is a guy you can rely on for two hundred innings or one hundred eighty innings or something like that. And like if that's the world we're living in, Patrick Corbin is a bet I'm going to take. <laughs> So getting back to this draft, you said you went in with some targets. How many of those targets were you actually able to get? Did you walk away with, with a, a bunch of guys you wanted, or did you miss on a bunch of those guys because you just didn't have the money to spend because you kept too many players? There was one player I, I, I really wanted, and that was Jonathan India. He's growing on me. I'm not going to lie. You and everyone else, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's no secret. I mean, ever since it's it's come out that Suarez is going to short and India's got a job in that infield, I think that's kind of excited everybody. So, it, it, you know, I'm not I'm not putting myself out there saying, hey, look, I got a guy that no one knows about. But I, I would have liked to get him. He went early uh, for, I think, like six bucks or something like that. And at that price, honestly, I, I kind of want nothing to do with him. Just be, given my constraints, I only had $22. So it's not that I, I, I wouldn't say I missed out on anybody. I just I had a long list of players that I knew were going to be available. And I knew if I waited long enough, I'd be able to get them on dollar days. Like, I don't even think I put in a bid for the first probably like 15 to 20 players off the board. I think I may have thrown out, 
I, I rose like Garrett Hampson to two dollars from one dollar and then got outbid at four, but that might have been it. You didn't spend you didn't spend more than three dollars on anyone, did you? I didn't. No, I, I went for for quantity and quantity on players that I think are of quality. Uh, <laughs> so my thought process was I messed up this year. And there's not much in this particular auction that I can do to change my outcome this year. Like either Montgomery, Tyon, Paxton are going to have great seasons and my excellent hitting is going to get me to the playoffs and beyond, or they're not. And and I'm going to have a poor season, but there wasn't much in the auction that I was going to be able to do. Now I did get Bumgarner for $3 who I thought like maybe he could potentially impact the season. But others, otherwise, I was looking at, all right, well, next year, if I plan on cutting a lot of guys, like, you know, Mookie's going to probably be up over $50 next year. He's 47 right now with the $2 increase and then arbitration, he might be over 50. Maybe he's a guy I want to move on from because I do have the $15, probably going to be closer to $20 Eloy, so on and so forth. But I was looking at positions that I think, all right, this guy can definitely take over next year and I'll feel comfortable with him. And he's only going to cost me probably $3. And there were two in particular that I walked away with that I was pretty happy about. I've got a $15 as of right now, Wilson Contreras, and I got Joey Bart for a dollar. Now, Bart was absolutely atrocious in his limited, very extremely limited experience last year. Obviously, I'm running that off. He's the number two catcher prospect in baseball behind Adley Rushman. And before Rushman was drafted, he was number one. I still think he has a lot of upside. I think he's going to take over that job probably full time if not at some point this season, definitely next year. So there's, you know, close to 20 bucks that I'm going to save right off the bat going from Contreras to Bart. And then there was a couple of others, either Nico Horner or Brendan Rogers. I don't need to talk about Brendan Rogers again. And we've talked about Nico Horner in the past. I got them both for a dollar. This isn't going to be a ton of savings, but for whatever reason, I kept Cesar Hernandez at eight bucks. Well, I actually think in this format, and if he continues to bat lead off for the Indians could be pretty valuable but that's not a player I'm going to want to keep for du- double digit dollars next year. So now again, I'm, I'm just trying to save money. I'm trying to save money in smart ways for next year's auction. And finally, my last little strategy here was to take some flyers on guys who could get closer roles who I can then trade. And honestly, it's already working out. I've got, I've already received two owners messaging me about interest in my relief pitchers, especially, you know, I kind of lucked out and I hate to put it that way because it really stinks. We've lost an awesome pitcher in Nick Anderson for, for months here, but I'm the guy with the $4 Diego Castillo. You know, I already, I took over this team with great value on Amir Garrett. I threw out some money on Adam Ottavino and I got Mark Melanson for $3, which honestly I thought was kind of surprising because I think it's, it's pretty close to a slam dunk. He's going to have that role. Pomeranz is back and pitching well, but He's the only lefty in that pen and Melanson, Keela, and uh, who am I missing? Emilio Pagan. Melanson's got the most closing experience and the most recent success in that role. So I think it's pretty safe he's going to get it. So now I've got pieces to trade. I've got cheap pieces. And then I've got, you know, your Yuli Gurriel and your Madison Bumgarner who potentially could help me this season. So I think it went about as well as I could have hoped. But again, I set myself up for failure this year by not being ruthless with my cuts. There's no reason I should be having a, a, a Josh Lindblom, who I don't know why I keep bringing him up now. Um, but there's a few others who I, I just, there was no reason to keep them at those prices. Makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about Lindblom since you keep bringing him up and we should just put him to bed. <laughs> he lost his rotation battle to Freddie Peralta. Now in this format, that's an interesting turn of events for you. Cause obviously you, once you decided to keep him, you were looking at him as a starting pitcher, thinking about how he'd fit into your rotation this league is a is a Fangraphs points head-to-head league. So again, for those who are new to Auto New, there are four scoring systems. There's four by four, 
which is a roto with home runs, runs, on-base percentage, slugging for hitting, and then ERA, whip, strikeouts, and home runs per nine for pitching. There is traditional five by five, which is five by five. And then there are two points formats. There's Fangraphs points and Saber points. They're both based on linear weights. The hitting is the same in both of them. The difference is, basically the difference is that in Fangraphs points, there is a punishment to pitchers for giving up hits. Saber points is pure defense independent. It's strikeouts, walks, home runs, hit by pitch. That's about it. Uh, in in Fangraphs points, giving up hits hurts a little bit too. Um, this one is a Fangraphs points league and it's a head-to-head league. And in the head-to-head leagues, rather than having a season-long innings cap, there is a limited number of starts you're allowed to make in the week. And for our league, it's nine. So you get seven days. Normal week, you get seven days. The first week's a little bit longer. But you get seven days, you get nine starts. Relievers aren't capped. You can use unlimited relievers, unlimited relief innings. And so Lindblom's an interesting case for you where I actually think he gained in value because he is likely to be used in some sort of a bulk relief role. He's likely to get multiple innings at once. And the ability to plug a guy into a relief spot and get like three innings from him one day is really, really valuable. Now, the key to that is it has to be predictable. Because what you don't want to do is plug him into a relief spot and have him in that relief spot every day. You want to have your elite relievers, your closers, your guys who are getting 10 points per inning. Those are the guys you want in those relief spots every day. What you want to be able to do is know relatively like, okay, Lindblom's going to throw one of these two or three days. And so for those two or three days, I'm going to plug him in. He's going to throw his three innings. I'm going to take him out and bench him for a few days. But you get a lot of bonus value. And they don't even have to be good innings necessarily. Because if he throws... Like a good reliever averages anywhere from seven to eight points per inning, right? That's like a good closer. Some of the best closers get up to 10, but talking seven to eight. For a a mediocre starting pitcher, you're looking at somewhere between four to four and a half points per inning. A guy like Lindblom, who probably falls into that lower end of that mediocre starting pitcher group, as a reliever will play up a little bit. And even though he won't be getting you the eight points per inning you're getting from like a Diego Castillo, who you mentioned, if he gets you five points per inning and throws two to three innings, that that is a better use of that roster spot on that day, that lineup spot on that day, than Castillo would be getting you eight points. So there's actually, I think, some upside in those bulk relievers. There's a chance you'll be very happy you kept Lindblom if that plays out. That makes total sense. And you're explaining that earlier. It definitely excited me a little bit more about Lindblom, but it really made me excited about my $7 AJ Puck who is looking like he's not going to make the rotation. It looks like Dalton Jeffries is going to, I don't know if that's official yet, but it's, it's all but official at this point. Either way, even if, you know, if Puck gets in the rotation, all the better because I think AJ Puck is, is a talent, but in a relief role in this type of setting, I think that could have a lot of, a lot of value. And that's, that's where I got him plugged in. So definitely interesting. Yeah. And I was targeting Garrett Crochet, who we've talked about before, but I was targeting Garrett Crochet in this draft for just that reason. I think somewhat similar to Puck, obviously very different path and all that, but similar in that both of them are viewed long-term as starters by their teams based on what their teams have said. Both of them are likely to be in the bullpen this year. There is a good chance that both of them are going to throw multiple innings out of that bullpen role, at least at times. Crochet may be more of a traditional late inning guy, but I think that because of the way they have talked about viewing him as a starter in the future, I think they're going to want to see if he can go multiple innings at times this year. We'll find out. And those guys just, they have a ton of value in this format. And the nice thing is 
you have 40 roster spots sounds like a lot, but as you're building these teams, it can often feel limited. And there's often guys, especially when you include the fact that the entire prospect universe is open to you. And so people are rostering almost any top hundred prospect uh, is going to get rostered somewhere. And so you want room for those guys. The beauty of a puck or a crochet is you're effectively stashing a starting pitcher prospect, but you're getting value from them this year in a relief role. And so when you compare that to stashing a Max Meyer, an Edward Cabrera, uh, there's a bunch of guys out there that you could stash that are really exciting young starting pitching who you'll get nothing from this year. And all of a sudden now I can stash, you know, you can stash crochet and it's like having a prospect ace level starting pitcher and having an elite reliever in one spot. And and that's really, really valuable. And so I, I like that puck for you still. I think that the other good thing with puck is as long as he pitches this year, you'll find out a lot, whether he's out of the, whether he starts some, whether or not he starts, like you're going to find out an awful lot and you're going to have some good clarity going into the off season of like, maybe not even the off season, you'll have good clarity going into like June or July. Is this a guy I'm going to keep long-term? Is he a guy I should get rid of? You know, which will really help because I think the, the the hardest part is when you don't learn anything about a guy and you're stuck with this like I've got this guy at seven bucks and I still don't know if they're any good and so what do I do? You're you're gonna learn a lot, which is which is helpful. And I think Puck is kind of entering that territory where I do have I will have to make a decision. You know, I can tell you right now, I'm obviously inclined. I, I view Puck as a long term piece, but at seven dollars, going to be nine dollars next year. All of a sudden, it's like yeah, it's not it's not a three four dollar player anymore. You know, do I really want to spend another year rolling the dice with that player, especially now that and I didn't even do this on purpose necessarily, but I took Jose de Leon, who also might fit this description of a guy who maybe doesn't necessarily nail down a spot in the rotation. And it doesn't look like he's going to use granted a fourth option by the arbiter. So he's probably going to start in triple A. Nevertheless, when he makes his way to the majors, if he does this year, I could see him kind of being another one of these long relievers with ex- extreme upside and a ton of strikeout potential. He's been brutal this spring, but another $1 investment I made in the auction that I thought could be a potentially interesting piece and, and kind of fit this description that we're talking about here. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the, the key here, if you're building for next year, is what you're doing, right? Give yourself a lot of shots to find value. And ideally, then next offseason, you go into the offseason and you're you're probably not building the top end of your lineup or the top end of your rotation this year. But if you build the back end, if you give yourself enough guys that then you get to go into the auction, if you look at what this year's auction was, if you could have gone into this year's auction feeling like I've got a good deep rotation, I just needed someone up front. I've got a good lineup. I just need a couple more big bats. There are Kershaw and Strasburg and Scherzer and Judge and Stanton and Arenado, Rizzo, Schwarber, Altuve. Like there's the guy, there are guys available in the auction that you can do something with, right? And, and I think that the important thing in this auction, in, in any auto new auction, to be clear, there's always talent available, but there's never a ton of talent available. And what that means is you have to go in, you almost look, I almost look at it like major league free free agency, right? You don't go into free agency to build your team. You go into free agency to add that one extra piece that you really could use that could put you over the top and that you don't care if you have to overspend to do it. Or you go in there to find relative values, like a perfect example of this is what happened, what happens in free agency this year, right? The Blue Jays go out and they spend on George Springer because they really, they are, they're close. They're knocking on the door. A couple big pieces could make all the difference. The Dodgers want to repeat. They go out and they spend on Trevor Bauer. 
And then you've got a bunch of teams that do things like what Cleveland did, which is they went out and got Eddie Rosario. He's a good, solid piece. He is not, you know, he's not an MVP candidate or a Cy Young candidate or something like that, but he helps a lot. And I, and in auto new auction, it works very similarly. You can go out there and you can spend $41 on Scherzer because you need that ace to put you over the top and you're going to take your bet on him being the ace, even if that's too high a price. Or you can go out there and add some some lower price guys, a $7 Patrick Corbin and a $7 Domingo Herman and a $10 Yusei Kukuchi, who are all guys I went out and added because you feel like you've got everything else in place and you just want that, you know, a little bit more depth. And so you've got to have a, a clear sort of point of view of what you're looking for, which I think is a good transition into to me talking a little bit about what I did going into our auction this year. For me, I did feel like I came in with a pretty solid team. Um, I had Reese Hoskins, Corey Seager, Christian Yellick, uh, Miguel Sano at third base, Gallo in the outfield, who, because this is an OBP leaning uh league is really valuable. Nick Castellanos, Austin Meadows, who I'm still very high on. Uh, I had DJ LeMayhew as my second baseman. Um, I'm trying to think who else I had. Tasker Hernandez. I had a bunch of guys. And then in my, my rotation, I already had Brandon Woodruff, Ramon Marquez, Framber Valdez before that happened, Hyunjin Ryu, Zach Wheeler. So I, I had a lot of really good pieces. I needed a big bat and I needed multiple starting pitchers. And then I needed some depth pieces. And so I actually went into this auction uh, focused on a, a strategy of trying to add Shohei Otani. I thought Otani, like I did, I only had one first baseman in this league. I usually have two. There wasn't, actually it's not true. I have CJ Crone in this league. I forgot that I had him. But I didn't have that like, I didn't have Hoskins and a Matt Olson or Hoskins and an Anthony Rizzo where my util spot was locked up. And so I actually was like, oh, Otani would be perfect for this team because I've got Crone, I've got a relatively, I've got some good outfielders I can move into that spot. Like I have options for that util spot, but nobody who just demands it every day, which means that I can use Otani in that util spot whenever he's available. And then I need pitching depth. And so he fills both of those roles for me. And he was sort of a perfect fit for this roster. And so I had set out to get him and a good outfield bat. And I had budgeted about 40 bucks to spend on Otani and about 25 bucks to spend on Kyle Schwarber. And that was sort of my plan. And my backup was go get Stanton as that big bat that I need and then spread around the money on starting pitching. And it turns out that there is a, another manager in this league, a guy named Ryan. Uh, he's actually co-manages with David Appleman, who's the guy who runs Fangraphs. They run the team together. They had budgeted almost exactly the same amount of money for Schwarber and Otani as I did. I found this out after the auction because he and I went back and forth bidding on Otani. Uh, I ended up bailing at 41. I went up to 41, went above what I had budgeted for him. Ryan went to 42 and that was that. Part of what happened here, and this is one of those interesting dynamics in auctions, is my backup plan was Stanton. He also was thinking of Stanton as a backup plan, but he was thinking of Stanton as a backup plan for the bat and as Kershaw as the backup plan for the arm. I wasn't going to go after Kershaw. He wasn't my second choice. And so what ends up happening in the auction is Ryan was expecting that Otani would go early, but Kershaw would go a little bit later. And so he'd be able to bid on Otani. And if somebody outbid him, so be it, he'd pivot and go get Kershaw and ideally Stanton. Instead, Kershaw, as we talked about before, was the first guy out there and it went for 22 bucks. 
Ryan at that moment didn't think, oh, I'm going to go to 23 on Kershaw. He thought, I still want this Otani-Schwarber combination. And so he waited and he didn't bid on, on Kershaw. I didn't have my backup come off the table yet. So Stanton went a few picks after Otani. And so I ended up bailing on Otani at 42, uh, or not bit, not going up to 43, and ended up getting Stanton at 39, and then using what would have been the Schwarber money that I no longer needed to spend on Schwarber for that $10 Kikuchi, $7 Domingo Herman, $7 Patrick Corbin, $5 David Price, like a bunch of starting pitchers. Ryan, in the meanwhile, ended up with a $42 Otani and a $23 Schwarber, which actually fits perfectly into the $65 I had budgeted for the two of them combined. But when Ryan and I talked about this after the the draft, one of the things that he mentioned was, had Kershaw not gone first, had that first nomination, let's say it's just been Strasburg. Strasburg and Kershaw just switched places in this. They both went for 22 anyways. This may have played out really differently because he would have been much more likely when I bid 41 to have said, my budget for Otani was 40. My backup plan is Kershaw. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting pause and I'm just letting him go and I'll go get someone else. And then I would have potentially ended up with that $41 Otani and a $23, like his $23 bid that I would have made on Schwarber if I didn't have Stanton would have been potentially would have been mine as well. And this would have been a very, very different auction purely off the fact that Kershaw didn't go first, basically. Didn't work out that way. I ended up not getting him. I, I had set out, I had 14 spots to fill. I had sort of identified that I want one big bat, two or three outfielders. Uh, I needed a backup second baseman. And I got a lot of the guys I targeted. I, you know, Otani was my second choice for that big bat. Or sorry, Otani was my choice for that big bat. Stanton was my backup. I got him. Uh, I was hoping to get a, a sort of big outfield bat as well, which is where I mentioned Schwarber. Once I got Stanton, I pivoted off that and I went a little bit cheaper in the outfield and I got uh, Sam Hilliard and Justin Upton. I was really hoping to get Josh Naylor, and he went for nine dollars. I just, I'm not willing to take the bet at that price. And then, you know, second base, I needed a backup second baseman. I, there were a bunch of guys I would have considered. I ended up with Luis Arise, which I was fine with. Uh, the one area where I didn't really get anything was I sort of wanted a second catcher, and nothing really worked out. And I ended up taking an extra pitcher instead. I, I had set out to add, I think, four or five relief pitchers, and I think I added six. So I wanted, I ended up getting Mike Myers. Oh no, I, I set out to add four. I ended up adding five. So I, I Myers, Victor Gonzalez, Tyler Matzak, Gregory Soto, and Evan Marshall. I really only needed four of those five. It's fine. Relief pitchers are really valuable in this format, so I'm good with that. And I also ended up with a $1 Evan White. He was supposed to be an outfielder, but the way my team is set up, outfield and util are sort of one in the same anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But I didn't really expect to get him. I got him for one buck. I, I threw him out late. Uh, as I think you know, I had I had three auctions going on that evening, and so I was a little distracted. And I hit my turn came up, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I had White at the top of my queue, and I was like, I'm going to toss him out. Somebody's going to be excited about him and bid two or three bucks, and it never happened. And so I was like, All right, I got a one dollar Evan White, and I don't know. I think it's a good value. It's just not what I wanted for my team necessarily. He is your boy, though. You you love Evan White. That is your guy. I mean, I he hits the ball so hard. So hard. He does. And that lineup is only getting better. That's for sure. So Chad, let me throw it out to you in, in terms of strategy, because we gave the hype, you gave the hypothetical of, all right, let's say Kershaw and Strasburg switch spots. That kind of would have changed the dynamic of everything because he would have been all in on, on Kershaw later and, and so on and so forth. Maybe you end up with Otani. Let's say same position. You have the same plan. Everything is in place for, for the Chad master plan here, but you're the first guy to nominate. 
What are you looking to do there? I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have known his plans uh, at this point because you didn't. So you wouldn't have had that knowledge. But what have been what would have been your move strategy wise? Because you wanted a you wanted a big bat. You wanted a starting pitcher. So what's the deal here? Yeah, I think. It's a really tough call, especially if you're actually first, because anecdotally, first guys off the board often come at discounts because people are still feeling things out, want to see how the room's going to play. And so what happened with Kershaw being, if not a huge discount, at least lower than maybe he should have gone, isn't uncommon. And so if I actually had the first nomination, I think in this case, I would have tossed Otani first. And I would have given myself the certainty of understanding what's going on with him. Am I going to get him? Am I not going to get him? If I don't, then I can immediately focus on my backup plan and know exactly what I need to do. He's also such a unique player that the backup plan for him, like, it's not like, oh, I didn't get Kershaw, so I'm going to bid on Strasburg. Like, if you don't get Otani, you completely have to reshape the way you're thinking about your auction in some cases. And so, I like the certainty of that early on, I would have, I would have gone for. If I were nominating second. Then I'm more worried about like, if I toss Otani here, I'm going to basically maximize his price. Everyone's now settled in. Everyone knows what's going. And so I might have been more likely to do someone else, but I'm not really sure. I, I've i had, uh, I can think off the top of my head of three or maybe four examples this season alone where nomination order hurt me. Um, I, in one of my other leagues, I, that I, I'm a co-manager with Niv Shah, who runs Auto New. Niv and I were targeting JD Martinez. Uh, there are only two big outfield bats, Martinez and Blackman, available. We do not. We are. I, I'm not in on Blackman this year, so I wasn't going to bid on Blackman, uh, at least not a, anywhere near the price he was going to go for. We were middle. We were picking, nominating sixth or seventh, and we were going to nominate Martinez. Figured we'll get him out there. We'll we'll try to pick him up quickly while everyone else still has at least one backup plan. Instead, Blackman went first. He went for a relatively high price, but nothing crazy. And by the time Martinez, Martinez at the time had been going for like anywhere from 25 to 30 bucks in auctions. He went for over 40 in that one. Wow. Because when he came out, there was no other option. Right. Like it was either him or you were immediately into like $5 outfielders. And so we and we ended up backing off and not getting him. Um, and I wish I had nominated him earlier. And, and the reality was I just didn't have a choice because... Blackman came out before we got a pick. There was nothing we could do. Uh, and I was sort of surprised Blackman got nominated first. But it does have me thinking that in these situations where there's only like one or two guys at a position available, I think if you want one, you want to get the guy you want nominated earlier rather than later. And if you don't want one of them, you want to get the one you think is less valuable nominated first, I think, because I think you can then drive up the price in the second one a lot if you if you don't want either of them. If you want one of them, that's a different story. So it's a, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we had, we had another situation later in that draft where we were targeting Hunter Dozier um, and our backup plan was Brian Anderson. Um, just needed a third base and an outfielder fit, you know, fit the bill. And Anderson got nominated first. And we were like, all right, fine, let's go get Anderson. We ended up paying, I think, nine bucks for Anderson. And then Dozier went for 15 or 16 when he finally went. And so I'm just seeing a lot of cases where that nomination order in, where there are cases of clear substitutes for each other. There are two top outfielders, you can get one of them. There are two top, top pitchers, you can get one of them. There are two third base slash outfielders in the 5 to $12 range. Like when you have two guys who are so obviously linked together, um, that second one can go for a lot, 
especially if the bidding on the first one is fierce, right? And I think it's you got to watch that closely. Had we been bidding on Anderson and it had been like, we bid, one other team bid, we bid, that other team bid, I might have backed off and said like, all right, there's only one other team in on him. There's probably only, there's probably no one in on Dozier. But it was a bunch of teams bidding. The bidding got up to like six or seven bucks really quickly. And I was like, let's just, let's just lock this down before everybody panics and thinks they have to pay 16 or 15 bucks, whatever it is for Dozier. Um, honestly, in retrospect, we have a lot of money left over in that league. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I'm thrilled with that. I might rather have that Dozier given the money we have available, but more and more I'm thinking like, I want to, I want to make that purchase when there are options still on the board for someone else and they might back off because of it. Uh, I think that works less in a situation where there's, you know, there's 20 guys left and, then people are just bidding on the players they like, but, and you may get, then I think you get a better value later, right? It's like, if there's 20 guys in a mid-tier outfield and you want any of them, you're probably going to get a better deal if you get the 15th of them instead of the first. But if there's two, you're probably gonna get a better deal on the first than the second. At least that's what I've been seeing this year. So it sounds like there's there's kind of two things at play here. Number one is that no matter who you, you really nominate with that that first nomination, if you have it, there's only so much that's still in your control and and there's there's still a lot left to be said. And I think the other thing that, that that's kind of at play here is you want to be aggressive with your needs. You don't want to wait around because the people who have the same need as you are going to potentially also bid you up when that drop off comes. I think the JD Martinez example was interesting, but especially that that Brian Anderson and Hunter Dozier one because I think if, if you polled 100 fantasy baseball players, 50 of them might prefer Anderson, 50 of them might prefer prefer Dozier. And so a $6 difference, you know, you said you'd prefer Dozier. I think I might too, just because of the speed element, but Anderson's certainly more proven $6 to me anyway, being so close to that $400 cap, that's, that's significant. So that's very interesting that, that idea of there's two guys left, you both, or there, there's people out there who have the same need as you be aggressive and, and get your guy. Cause you have no idea what that last option is going to go for. Yeah. And over the course of auctions, like there, there's people have looked at the the data from auctions, and prices definitely go down. You get better values later in auction than you do earlier, but I do think there's these unique cases where there is a cliff that's gonna that that the position is gonna fall off of, and you often end up in situations where like reasonable minds may disagree between Dozier and Anderson, but. If people need a third baseman in an outfield, and then after those two, you have to get two separate players to do it, and they're not, those players aren't nearly as good. It just, people are aware of that, right? And and there's there's enough sort of groupthink in the fantasy realm that even if people disagree about Anderson and Dozier between them, they're, they also recognize who those guys are and what their value is and where they are ranked relative to everyone else. And so you, you can end up in these situations where everyone's thinking, all right, I want one of those two guys. Yeah, that's and that that I think is what happened to us. And I think that's sort of what happened to me here with with Otani was there were the difference here with Otani was to me the backup plan was Stanton and to Ryan the backup plan was Kershaw. And so when when Otani came up, my backup plan was still a viable option for me and his backup plan was. And who knows, maybe he wouldn't have bailed any earlier on the bidding anyways. I ended up paying 39 for Stanton and then like I said getting a bunch of, you know, Kikuchi Corbin uh price and Herman for pretty good prices I thought. So I'm sort of fine with how it played out. I think that that price on Stanton is a pretty good price. But yeah, I mean it just it's all it, 
there's so much that's random and there's so little you can control. So this is part of what I find so fascinating about Otnew, right? Because if, if folks who have not played Otnew are still with us right now, God bless, but you may have just heard a $39 Stanton. And to people who play in like a normal salary league, like that's that's crazy money. But if you look at Chad's team, Chad has a $16 DJ LeMahieu, a $13 Austin Meadows, a $14 Nick Castellano. Like it just makes sense to go all in and go get your guy. And so this is something I'm still getting used to a $3 to Oscar Hernandez still getting used to here with Ot new is that like $39 for Stanton for this team makes absolutely complete sense but in a normal salary cap league where, where you just are maybe your first year auction or whatever that is like that's like 13 times his price so I, I just find that fascinating another thing we, we've talked a lot about Otani his value in a daily points league where he's eligible at both just seems absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I don't blame you for for not going any higher than than forty one dollars. I mean, at some point you got to draw the line, and this is a guy who has struggled, to say the least, to do both. But I just I think his value is is something. And and one last thing, Chad, I just want to break some news really quickly, and it's not that significant of news, but it is significant for my auction because Matt Barnes has gone down with COVID apparently, and with us on the cusp of the start of the season. I got Adam Ottavino for a dollar. And I think a lot of closer situations, and I'm throwing a lot at you here, be it Stan's value, Otani's eligibility, and now Matt Barnes in the closer situation for the Red Sox. But I'll, I'll remind you of all three if you need it. But quite often, the guy who starts the year as the closer, if he does okay with that job, when the presumed other player comes back, unless it's Araldus Chapman or Josh Hader or whatever, that guy usually keeps that job if he's pitching well. Ottavino's advanced statistics last year say he was a little bit unlucky and probably better than he produced. And it was only like, I don't know, 14 innings pitched. There could be some value there. So now I'm, I'm all of a sudden getting a little excited about my Ottavino shares. But Chad, feel free to dive into any of that. Stan's value, Otani, or the Red Sox closer situation. Let's uh, let's talk Otani just for another minute here. So I think the interesting thing with Otani, um, let's assume health, right? Let's assume that he's a healthy guy this year because – that's obviously the risk with Otani. If he's healthy, he is something like 60% of an elite utility bat and, I don't know, 75 to 80% of a top-level starting pitcher, right? He's going to throw, because they're going to go with the six-man rotation and because they've always talked about sort of going easy on his arm, like, I don't think you can count on him for as many innings as you can uh, 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 another option. But if you're talking about a guy who could be a, starting pitcher based on his skill set, right? If you, you know, and then you're a guy who can be a $40, $30 to $40 utility bat as a full price player um, based on his skill set at Util. And then you, you dock him down because there's some, because of the limited innings and you dock him down because of the limited plate appearances, you still pretty easily come away with a guy who could be a $50 player. Um, Now, at 42, you're taking most of that risk. He needs to actually produce at that level in both of those positions, and he needs to stay healthy. And that is where, for me, 43 was just too much. The other the other challenge with him is that I think the risk is higher with him than it is with, like, I, mean, I, I, I pivoted to Stanton, who's not exactly a paragon of health himself. But the difference is that with Otani, if you draft him thinking he's your starting util 
and your let's say number two or number three starting pitcher or something like that, and then he gets hurt, you you haven't you have to backup plans for both of those things, right? You have to have enough pitching to make up for the lost time and a bat that you can slot into that utility spot. Whereas Stanton is now my number two outfielder behind Christian Yelich. If he gets hurt, I need to move everyone up my outfield. Fine. I can manage that and I have to figure that out and I'll have to deal with that probably at some point this year. But it's a lot easier than losing your utility bat and your number three starting pitcher on the same day. So there is, I think there's added risk with him and that's why I sort of bailed. But yeah, you're right. His his value in a daily league where you can use him the way the angels use him is is huge as it should be i think like i generally don't like weekly leagues i'm i get why the ability to not think about lineups for a bunch of leagues every night is super valuable so i get why people like weekly leagues it's not my i i prefer daily i think it does a better job of representing player value i really dislike the formats where otani is split into two players it makes no sense to me He's not two different people. (laughs) And the fun of Otani is that he is both. And so to me, it's just sort of ridiculous that that people couldn't figure out how to make him a single player. (laughs) But here we are. I'm glad Adam New did it the right way. I'm with you on both. I am way more of a daily player. Uh, Yeah, I'm a little bit of a psychopath. I'm in over 20 leagues and most of them are daily. Most of them. I know a lot of the more competitive formats, you know, weekly with Fab. and, And I think that that's fun. But I agree with you on both fronts. I think it's it's a better reflection of actual player value when you can do it daily, right? Because I'm going to only want to play, you know, so-and-so against lefties and this guy against righties, especially in deeper formats. And with Otani, you know, you're right. He's one guy. Like, let's not split him up into two. If I, how do you, it's incredibly risky to me where he's broken up into two to take Otani the pitcher. Like, I, I don't I don't know how to value that. And you could say, all right, well, tough luck. Like, I'm going to take him here and that's too bad. But again, he is one guy. And I think that is part of the fun. It is a game. Otani's one guy. He should be able to do both for you. My the format I play on the most. And, you know, I want to let listeners know that this is because I've been playing on this platform for over 15 years is ESPN. If I hadn't been there for this long, I would have moved on by now. But it's home for me on fantasy and on ESPN, he does both. So that's what I'm used to, but you're right on Yahoo and so on and so forth. He's multiple. And I I just don't, I don't get that. And I think in this format where we only get nine starts a week, which is, is a low number. I mean, that that's challenging. Otani can hurt you because if he, there's going to be times where Otani goes out there, he only pitches three or four innings, but at the same time, because it's points, he's going to throw three or four innings. Maybe he walks four and it's ugly, but he'll also probably give up like no earned runs and get like nine strikeouts. And that's still going to give you a decent chunk of points, even if it takes up one of your starts. So it's it's risky, Otani the pitcher, but because you're getting also Otani the hitter and it's daily and it's points, his value, this is, this is to me peak Otani value, a points league daily where he contributes as both a hitter and a pitcher. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's as it should be, right? I think the the reality is a healthy Otani, if the Angels get a full season out of Otani, he is probably the single most valuable player in baseball, right? Whether or not he actually wins the MVP award, he is probably more valuable to his team than any other player in baseball if he is fully healthy. And to me, fantasy doesn't have to perfectly represent the real world, but it should at least try and it should at least come close. And, and turning Otani from a guy who is maybe the most single most valuable player in baseball to a guy who can't possibly achieve those heights because you have to use up two roster spots. Like 
just crazy to me. Imagine if Major League Baseball is like, look, everybody gets 26 men on their roster. But hey, Angels, if you're going to let Otani be your DH, that's a separate roster spot. You got to use him twice. Like, you know, Reds, if uh, if Lorenzen pinch hits this year, you got to give up a roster spot for that. Like, that's just crazy to me. So whatever. Anyways, we should jump into the auto new question of the day. So Pete, what do you got for me this week? Sure. So I, I hinted at this earlier and it's in its value versus age. Ultimately, uh, I mean, basically this whole episode has been the odd new question of the day. But anyway, let's let, let's dive in. So you asked me earlier, what has surprised me so far about odd new? And part of what I was expecting was like, obviously, because it's somewhat similar to a dynasty in that you can try to keep a at least a massive majority of your team for as long as you can afford them. That the age would be like this this real important factor. And yet I realized pretty quickly in the auction getting, you know, Rogers and Bart and so on and so forth for a dollar that it really wasn't that significant. So I feel like Otnu gives this illusion of being long term when in reality it really is kind of like a and we we hinted at this when we went over rebuilding, right? That it shouldn't take very long to rebuild. What matters is not the age of your players, but overwhelmingly the cost. And the example that I put in the notes is like, and this is an extreme example because this is not the value of either of these players, but I'd much rather roster a $10 Nelson Cruz than a $50 Jordan Alvarez, even though Cruz could retire next year for all we know. He's that old. He could fall off a cliff performance-wise. And Alvarez is like this young stud who is probably going to be an absolute bomber for years it really comes down to price despite it being a long-term league i mean we've been a league in this fan staff this has been around since 2011 so is this something you're able to take advantage of in trades maybe not in this league because they're new experts but like do you find that people overvalue age in a league where like it shouldn't take you long to rebuild and what really matters is dollar value? Yeah, always. In every every keeper league, every dynasty league, every uh, people always overvalue youth. And Auto New, I think, exacerbates that in some cases because of the dollars associated with players, to your point. In a dynasty league, if you're overvaluing youth, at least you get to actually keep that guy forever, right? And you know that his his contract or salary or whatever is the same as the older guy because they're all just free players that you get to keep forever. In Auto New, that's not the case. And so because of those dollar figures, you're right. I think the 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 question in thinking about like, how do I value this guy? It comes down to what do I think is he going to produce this year? What do I think is he going to produce next year and maybe the year after, right? And I'm only, I'm never really looking a lot more than two to three, maybe four seasons out, only because I think it's, it's hard enough to predict what's going to happen next week, let alone in like 2026. So I, I try to focus on the, the near term. And so because of that, there is value to youth, right? At the same price, if I have to choose between Jordan Alvarez and Nelson Cruz, I am more confident I'm going to get value from Alvarez next year or the year after than I am Cruz. At some point, he will get old, I think. Maybe. Maybe Nelson Cruz will never get old. Who knows? But I expect it's Tom Brady. <laughs> Nelson Cruz is the Tom Brady with no World Series rings, though. <laughs> Other than that, they're the same. Yeah, so when I when I look at, at guys like that, I mean, like almost a better comparison is Juan Soto and Mike Trout, right? who, especially in the points leagues where the speed doesn't really matter and you're not worried about the stolen bases as much, like they are the two most valuable outfielders. They are very clearly the two most valuable outfielders. There's nobody else in the conversation. How much does their age gap, and it's a pretty, you know, it's six years, seven years difference between the two of them. How much does that age gap really matter? I don't think it matters a whole lot. 
because at this point, I'm not expecting Trout to decline anytime soon. And I don't think Soto is getting better. Like, I don't think, I don't think we're like, you know, still waiting for peak Soto. I think Soto sort of hit his peak early and is going to stay in it forever, which is great. Three, four years from now, or maybe sooner, we're going to start to see signs of decline from Trout. And when that happens, then that age will matter. But right now, if you're looking at, you know, a similarly $60 Trout versus $60 Soto, I'm not sure the age should matter that much. But I think you're right that the market in all of these formats tends to overvalue youth. And it's a combination, I think, of overthinking the long-term value and thinking like, oh, I could have this guy for a decade when it's like salaries are going to increase and this guy's going to get hit with arbitration. And in auto new, you're probably not going to have him for a decade. You might, but you probably won't. Uh, So it's overstating that long-term focus along with, I think, having unfair expectations of what an aging curve will look like or what a breakout will look like. And I think, look, you know, not everybody follows the same aging curve and, and development isn't linear. And so you never really know with these young guys what, what might happen. But there isn't to me a clear like at 22, he's going to be 10% better than he was at 21. And at 23, he'll be 10% better than 22. And it'll keep doing that until he's 28. And then it'll plateau. Like that isn't how it works. And especially for some of these guys who break out really young, they might get better. But I don't think that, like I said, I don't expect Soto to follow some like aging curve where for the next five years, he's consistently getting better and better and better. It's just not a reasonable expectation for him. He's so good right now. Uh, and so I think sometimes people look at those young players and think, well, if they're doing that now, just wait. And I'm, I tend to be more like, if they're doing that now, they'll probably keep doing that um, unless there's something else going on, right? I think... You know, you can look at you can look at Vlad and say if he's he's been really good, sort of disappointing compared to what we thought he'd be, but still very good. But it's also very clear that if he starts to elevate the ball more, there's another level there. That is a different thing than just I bet he'll get better because he's young. Uh, and so, to me, if I'm looking at value, I'm looking at I'm looking at the value, and the age is a is a relatively small part of it. If I'm looking for breakouts, I'm less interested in young players than I am in players who are who have a clear opportunity to improve like Vlad elevating the ball or like Christian Yellick elevating the ball a few years ago. Um, you know, when you read some of the articles on, on pitcher list, I'm, I'm less of a pitcher analyst than I am a hitter analyst in, in a lot of ways, but I read all about all these pitchers on pitcher list where like, if this guy, you know, adds a changeup, tweaks this pitch, uses this pitch more, that's the case where I think there's more long-term value where you think, okay, small change, big results, worth it. I think people overstate the like he's going to get better just because he's young. So that, that's my overall take there. No, that makes total sense, and I, I think there is a lot of overlap with keeper leagues here, right? Where you brought up earlier, it this is the case in in all sort of long term formats, and I would definitely agree. And and you made a note that like sure in keeper leagues where there's no price for keepers, it's different. Age does matter because you know you can keep them for so long. But I would argue it does matter your settings in those leagues as well, right? Um, in a three keeper, we've got a manager who has Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto, and Bryce Harper, and there's no price for keeping and, and walks matter in this league. Like that's a stacked keeper set, and he's gonna have that base for as long as he wants it, right? And that has its flaws, but we don't need to dive into that now. 
But the point being, it's also just a three keeper. Like you don't need to sell out for age there because you're pretty much turning over 90% of your roster no matter what. So in that same format, I have Max Scherzer, who you can have your questions about Scherzer between all the different health issues he's had, but I'm perfectly fine keeping him in such a such a small keeper amount setting. Whereas if it were more, age would maybe matter a little bit more for me. Yeah, with three keepers, I agree, right? Because you're you're gonna find three keepers. Like it isn't that hard to have three guys you want to keep. And so, yeah, you keep your three best players sort of regardless of age. There's maybe a tiebreaker on age there. Uh, You're keeping Tatis in that format, not because he's so young, but because he's, he's a keeper. (laughs) He's he's maybe the best fantasy player in baseball. So why would you not keep him? Um, And, and, you know, you don't like in auto new, you might keep like a Coven Biggio who is clearly not Tatis is probably not one of your keepers in a three-keeper. You're going to keep him in auto-new because you probably have him relatively inexpensively. He's got a nice, bright future. Great. Auto-new leagues are also, other than 5 by 5 they're all on base-based. And so lots of value in Biggio. But like, you don't have to keep him just because he's a young middle infielder in a three-keeper. There's probably a better player. You'd rather keep DJ LeMayhew, who is also a middle infielder, who isn't young, who probably will fall off a cliff at some point, but that's okay, because by the time you are done keeping LeMayhew, there'll be somebody else you want to keep in a three-keeper. Ten-keeper gets a little bit more borderline how much you want to you know, risk keeping a guy like Biggio in the hopes that he continues to develop. Fifteen-keeper, twenty-keeper, dynasty? Okay, in dynasty, you're going to keep everybody. Great. Like, I don't know. I, I think Otternew does a really nice job of, of bridging that gap where you, you don't think – you don't focus specifically on – the age and the development path, you have to factor in the value and the cost as well. And I think that's a really important piece. So with that, I think it is about time we wrapped up. Thank you all for joining and for listening. Please, please, please subscribe anywhere podcasts are subscribable. Uh, Leave us ratings, leave us reviews. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Follow us at keep or cut. That's cut with a K. Uh, We also would love to get your questions, your feedback, your thoughts on what we should cover, any other information. You can follow Pete at Pete B Baseball. You can find me at Chad Young. And we're really excited you listened to us today. We hope you enjoyed it and let us know what you're thinking. And we'll see you next week.